0: Hello, dear listeners. In a couple of minutes, I'll give a reading of The World of Wrestling by Roland Barthes, the essay that was heavily referenced in episode two of this podcast. So skip ahead to around the two minute mark to avoid my waffle. It'll be a straight reading with very few annotations. I just wanted to give give the reading as is while I work on episode three of this podcast which I can reveal is all about defining cultural eras such as modernism, postmodernism, and now metamodernism and illustrating them with examples from professional wrestling. So if you're a wrestling fan and you've heard those words and you've always wanted to know what exactly they mean and how wrestling can simply and easily explain all of them because it's magic like that, Roland Barthes knew it, then that episode will be out two weeks from today. If you're listening to this podcast because the algorithm has been extremely kind and you've searched for semiotics or structuralism or Roland Barthes himself, and you're listening to this podcast as a tool for reading so you can listen to the essay instead of using your own stupid eyes, then if you're interested, please check out the first two essays I've released on this feed. The aim of this project is to pick up where Roland Barthes left off and use a variety of media and cultural theories to analyse and explain the pop culture phenomenon that is professional wrestling. Okay, that that's about enough, Waffle. Thanks for listening, and now, let's get to the essay. The World of Wrestling, from Mythologies by Roland Barthes The Grand Delinquent Truth of Gestures on Life's Great Occasions. Baudelaire. The virtue of all-in wrestling is that it is the spectacle of excess. Here we find a grand delinquence which must have been that of ancient theatres. And in fact, wrestling is an open-air spectacle. For what makes the circus or the arena what they are is not the sky, a romantic value-suited rather to fashionable occasions, it is the drenching and vertical quality of the flood of light. Even hidden in the most squalid Parisian halls, wrestling partakes of the nature of the great solar spectacles, such as Greek drama and bullfights. In both, a light without shadow generates an emotion without reserve. There are people who think that wrestling is an ignoble sport, Wrestling is not a sport, it is a spectacle, and it is no more ignoble to attend a wrestled performance of suffering than a performance of the sorrows of Arnulf or Andromache, examples of characters from classic French and Greek plays. Of course there exists a false wrestling in which the participants unnecessarily go to great lengths to make a show of a fair fight. This is of no interest. True wrestling, wrongly called amateur wrestling, is performed in second-rate halls, where the public spontaneously attunes itself to the spectacular nature of the contest, like the audience at a suburban cinema. Then, these same people wax indignant because wrestling is a stage-managed sport, which ought, by the way, to mitigate its ignominy. The public is completely uninterested in knowing whether the contest is rigged or not, and rightly so. It abandons itself to the primary virtue of the spectacle, which is to abolish all motives and all consequences. What matters is not what it thinks, but what it sees. This public knows very well the distinction between wrestling and boxing. It knows that boxing is a Jansenist sport based on a demonstration of excellence. One can bet on the outcome of a boxing match. With wrestling, it would make no sense. A boxing match is a story which is constructed before the eyes of the spectator. In wrestling, on the contrary, it is each moment which is intelligible, not the passage of time. The spectator is not interested in the rise and fall of fortunes, he expects the transient image of certain passions. Wrestling, therefore, demands an immediate reading of the juxtaposed meanings, so that there is no need to connect them. The logical conclusion of the contest does not interest the wrestling fan, while on the contrary, a boxing match always implies a science of the future. In other words, wrestling is a sum of spectacles, of which no single one is a function. Each moment imposes the total knowledge of a passion which rises erect and alone, without ever extending to the crowning moment of a result. Thus, the function of the wrestler is not to win, it is to go exactly through the motions which are expected of him. It is said that Judo contains a hidden symbolic aspect. Even in the midst of efficiency, its gestures are measured, precise, but restrained, drawn accurately, but by stroke, without volume. Wrestling, on the contrary, offers excessive gestures, exploited to the limit of their meaning. In Judo, a man who is down is hardly down at all. He rolls over, he draws back, he eludes defeat or, if the latter is obvious, he immediately disappears. In wrestling, a man who is down is exaggeratedly so, and completely fills the eyes of the spectators with the intolerable spectacle of his powerlessness. This function of grand delinquence is indeed the same as that of ancient theatre, whose principle, language and props concurred in the exaggeratedly visible explanation of a necessity. The gesture of the vanquished wrestler signifying to the world a defeat which, far from disguising, he emphasises and holds like a pause in music, corresponds to the mask of antiquity meant to signify the tragic mode of the spectacle. In wrestling, as on the stage in antiquity, one is not ashamed of one's suffering one knows how to cry one has a liking for tears each sign in wrestling is therefore endowed with an absolute clarity since one must always understand everything on the spot as soon as the adversaries are in the ring the public is overwhelmed with the obviousness of the roles as in theater Each physical type expresses to excess the part which has been assigned to the contestant. Thovin, a 50-year-old with an obese, sagging body, whose type of asexual hideousness always inspires feminine nicknames, displays in his flesh the characters of baseness. For his part is to represent what, in the classical concept of the salaud or the Bastard, he appears as organically repugnant. The nausea voluntarily provoked by Thovin shows therefore a very extended use of signs, not only in ugliness used here in order to signify baseness, but in addition ugliness is wholly gathered into a particularly repulsive quality of matter. He is the pallid collapse of dead flesh, so that the passionate condemnation of the crowd no longer stems from its judgment, but instead from the very depth of its humours. And Bards notes that the public yelled "le babak! at Thovin, uh, which translates to stinking meat. It will thereafter let itself be frenetically embroiled in an idea of Thovin, which will conform entirely with this physical origin. His actions will perfectly correspond to the essential viscosity of his personage. It is therefore in the body of the wrestler that we find the first key to the contest. I know from the start that all of Thovin's actions, his treacheries, cruelties, and acts of cowardice will not fail to measure up to the first image of ignobility he gave me. I can trust him to carry out, intelligently and to the last detail, all the gestures of a kind of amorphous baseness, and thus fill to the brim the image of the most repugnant bastard there is, the Bastard Octopus. Wrestlers therefore have a physique as peremptory as those of the characters of the Commedia de la who display in advance, in their costumes and attitudes, the future contents of their parts. Just as the character Pantaloon can never be anything but a ridiculous cuckold, Harlequin an astute servant and the Doctor a stupid pedant, in the same way that the wrestler Thorvin will never be anything but an ignoble traitor. Bards then briefly lists some other characters he came into contact with. Reynier, a tall blonde fellow with a limp body and unkempt hair, the moving image of passivity. Mazurd, short and arrogant like a cock, that of grotesque conceit. And Orsano, an effeminate teddy boy first seen in a blue and pink dressing gown. That doubly humorous of a vindictive salope, or bitch. Just some casual stereotyping of certain lifestyles there, but remember this was the 1950s, and this all sounds very similar to how crowds responded to gold dust in the 90s, so let's not pretend we did any growing in that time. The physique of the wrestlers therefore constitutes a basic sign, which, like a seed, contains the whole fight. But this seed proliferates, for it is at every turn during the fight in each new situation that the body of the wrestler casts to the public the magical entertainment of a temperament which finds its natural expression in a gesture. The different strata of meaning throw light on each other and form the most intelligible of spectacles. Wrestling is like Diocratic writing. Above the fundamental meaning of his body, the wrestler arranges comments which are episodic but always opportune, and constantly help the reading of the fight by means of gestures, attitudes, and mimicry which make the intention utterly obvious. Sometimes the wrestler triumphs with a repulsive sneer while kneeling on the good sportsman. Sometimes he gives the crowd a conceited smile which forebodes an early revenge. Sometimes, pinned to the ground, he hits the floor ostentatiously to make evident to all the intolerable nature of his situation. And sometimes, he erects a complicated set of signs meant to make the public understand that he legitimately personifies the ever-entertaining image of the gambler, endlessly confabulating about his displeasure. We are therefore dealing with a real human comedy. Where the most socially inspired nuances of passion, conceit, rightfulness, refined cruelty, a sense of paying one's debts, always philactitiously find the clearest sign which can receive them, express them, and triumphantly carry them to the confines of the whole. It is obvious that at such a pitch, it no longer matters whether the passion is genuine or not. What the public wants is the image of passion, not passion itself. There is no more a problem of truth in wrestling than in theatre. In both, what is expected is the intelligible representation of moral situations which are usually private. This emptying out of interiority to the benefit of its exterior signs, this exhaustion of the content by the form, is the very principle of triumphant classical art. Wrestling is an immediate pantomime, infinitely more efficient than the dramatic pantomime, for the wrestler's gesture needs no anecdote, no decor, in short, no transference in order to appear true. Each moment in wrestling is therefore like an algebra which instantaneously unveils the relationship between cause and its represented effect. Wrestling fans certainly experience a kind of intellectual pleasure in seeing the moral mechanism function so perfectly. Some wrestlers, who are great comedians, entertain as much as a Moliere character because they succeed in imposing an immediate reading of their inner nature. Armand Mazord, a wrestler of an arrogant and ridiculous character, always delights the audience by the mathematical rigour of his transcriptions, carrying the form of his gestures to the furthest reaches of their meaning. ...and giving to his manner of fighting the kind of vehemence and precision found in a great scholastic disputation... ...in which what is at stake is at once the triumph of pride and the formal concern with truth. What is thus displayed for the public is the great spectacle of suffering, defeat and justice. Wrestling presents man's suffering with all the amplification of tragic masks... The wrestler who suffers in a hold which is reputedly cruel—an arm lock or twisted leg, for example—offers an excessive portrayal of suffering. Like a primitive Pieta, he exhibits for all to see his face exaggeratedly contorted by an intolerable affliction. It is obvious, of course, that in wrestling, reserve would be out of place. ...since it is opposed to the voluntary ostentation of the spectacle... ...to this exhibition of suffering which is the very aim of the fight. This is why all the actions which produce suffering are particularly spectacular. Like the gesture of a conjurer who holds out his cards clearly to the public. Suffering which appears without intelligible cause would not be understood... A concealed action that was actually cruel would transgress the unwritten rules of wrestling and would have no more sociological efficacy than a mad or parasitic gesture. On the contrary, suffering appears as inflicted with emphasis and conviction. For everyone must not only see that the man suffers, but also and above all understand why he suffers. What wrestlers call a hold, that is, any figure which allows one to immobilise the adversary indefinitely and to have him at one's mercy, has precisely the function of preparing in a conventional, therefore intelligible fashion, the spectacle of suffering, by methodically establishing the conditions of suffering. The inertia of the vanquished allows the temporary victor to settle in his cruelty and to convey to the public his terrifying slowness of the torturer, who is certain about the outcome of his actions. To grind the face of one's powerless adversary or to scrape his spine with one's fist with a deep and regular movement or at least to produce the superficial appearance of such gestures. Wrestling is the only sport which gives such an externalised image of torture. But, here again, only the image is involved in the game, and the spectator does not wish for the actual suffering of the contestant. He only enjoys the perfection of an iconography. It is not true that wrestling is a sadistic spectacle. It is only an intelligible spectacle. There is another figure, more spectacular still than a hold. It is the forearm smash. This loud slap of the forearm, this embryonic punch with which one clouts the chest of one's adversary, and which is accompanied by a dull noise and the exaggerated sagging of a vanquished body. In the forearm smash, catastrophe is brought to the point of maximum obviousness. So much so that ultimately the gesture appears as no more than a symbol. This is going too far. This is transgressing the moral rules of wrestling, where all signs must be excessively clear but must not let the intention of clarity be seen. The public then shouts, he's laying it on. Not because it regrets the absence of real suffering, but because it condemns artifice. As in the theatre, one fails to put the part across as much by an excess of sincerity as by an excess of formalism. Thigh slaps, he's talking about thigh slaps. We have already seen to what extent wrestlers exploit the resources of a given physical style. Developed and put to use in order to unfold before the eyes of the public a total image of defeat. The flaccidity of tall white bodies which collapse with one blow or crash into the ropes with arms flailing. The inertia of massive wrestlers rebounding pitiably off all the elastic surfaces of the ring. Nothing can signify more clearly and more passionately the exemplary abasement of the vanquished. Deprived of all resilience, the wrestler's flesh is no longer anything but an unspeakable heap spread out on the floor, where it solicits relentless reviling and jubilation. There is here a paroxysm of meaning in the style of antiquity, which can only recall the heavily underlined intentions in Roman triumphs. At other times, there is another ancient posture which appears in the coupling of the wrestlers. That of the suppliant who, at the mercy of his opponent, on bended knees, his arms raised well above his head, is slowly brought down by the vertical pressure of the victor. In wrestling, unlike judo, defeat is not a conventional sign. Abandoned as soon as it is understood, it is not an outcome but quite the contrary. It is a duration, a display. It takes up the ancient myths of public suffering and humiliation. The cross and the pillory. It is as if the wrestler is crucified in broad daylight and in the sight of all. I have heard it said of a wrestler stretched on the ground. He is dead, little Jesus, there on the cross and these iconic words revealed the hidden roots of a spectacle which enacts the exact gestures of the most ancient purifications. But what wrestling is above all meant to portray is a purely moral concept, that of justice. The idea of paying is essential to wrestling, and the crowd's shouts of, ''Give it to him!'' means, above all else, ''Make him pay!'' This is, therefore, needless to say, an imminent justice. The baser the action of the bastard, the more delighted the public is by the blow which he justly receives in return. If the villain, who is of course a coward, takes refuge behind the ropes, claiming unfairly to have a right to do so by a brazen mimicry, he is inexorably pursed there and caught, and the crowd is jubilant at seeing the rules broken for the sake of a deserved punishment. Wrestlers know very well how to play up to the capacity for indignation of the public by presenting the very limit of the concept of justice. This outermost zone of confrontation where it is enough to infringe the rules a little more to open the gates of a world without restraints. For a wrestling fan, nothing is finer than the revengeful fury of a betrayed fighter who throws himself vehemently not on a successful opponent, but on the smarting image of foul play. Naturally, it is the pattern of justice which matters here, much more than its content. ...wrestling is above all a quantitative sequence of compensations, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. This explains why sudden changes of circumstances have, in the eyes of wrestling habituates, a sort of moral beauty. They enjoy them as they would enjoy an inspired episode in a novel, ...and the greater the contrast between the success of a move and the reversal of fortune, The nearer the good luck of a contestant to his downfall, the more satisfying the dramatic mime is felt to be. Justice is therefore the embodiment of a possible transgression. It is from the fact that there is a law that the spectacle of the passions which infringe it derives its value. It is therefore easy to understand why out of five wrestling matches, only about one is fair. One must realise, let it be repeated, that fairness here is a role or a genre. As in the theatre, the rules do not at all constitute a real constraint. They are the conventional appearance of fairness. So that in actual fact, a fair fight is nothing but an exaggeratedly polite one. The contestants confront each other with zeal, not rage. They can remain in control of their passions, they do not punish their beaten opponent relentlessly, they stop fighting as soon as they are ordered to do so, and congratulate each other at the end of a particularly arduous episode, during which, however, they have not ceased to be fair. One must, of course, understand here that all those polite actions are brought to the notice of the public by the most conventional gestures of fairness. Shaking hands... ...raising the arms, ostensibly avoiding a fruitless hold which would detract from the perfection of the contest. Conversely, foul play exists only in its excessive signs. Administering a big kick to one's beaten opponent... ...taking refuge behind the ropes while ostensibly invoking a puerile formal right... ...refusing to shake hands with one's opponent before or after the fight taking advantage of the end of the round to rush treacherously at the adversary from behind, fouling him while the referee is not looking. Since evil is the natural climate of wrestling, a fair fight has chiefly the value of being an exception. It surprises the aficionado, who greets it when he sees it as an anachronism and rather sentimental throwback to the sporting tradition. He feels suddenly moved at the sight of the general kindness of the world but would probably die of boredom and indifference if the wrestlers did not quickly return to the orgy of evil which alone makes good wrestling. Extrapolated, fair wrestling could lead only to boxing or judo, whereas true wrestling derives its originality from all the excesses which make it a spectacle and not a sport. The ending of a boxing match or judo contest is abrupt, like the full stop which closes a demonstration. The rhythm of wrestling is quite different, for its natural meaning is that of rhetorical amplification. The emotional magniloquence, the repeated paroxysms, the exasperation of the retorts can only find their natural outcome in the most baroque confusion. Some fights, among the most successful kind, are crowned by a final charivari, A sort of unrestrained fantasia where the rules, the laws of the genre, the referee's censuring and the limits of the ring are all abolished. Swept away by a triumphant disorder which overflows into the hall and carries off pell-mell wrestlers, seconds, referee and spectators. It has already been noted that, in America, wrestling represents a sort of mythological fight between good and evil. Of a quasi-political nature, where the bad wrestler always being supposed to be a red or communist, the process of creating heroes in French wrestling is very different, being based on ethics and not on politics. What the public is looking for here is the gradual construction of a highly moral image. Which is that of the perfect bastard. One comes to wrestling in order to attend the continuing adventures of a single major leading character. Permanent and multi-form, like Punch or Scapponeau. Inventive in unexpected figures and yet always faithful to his role. The bastard is here revealed as a Molière character, or a portrait by Labruyère. This is to say, as a classical entity, an essence whose acts are only significant epiphenomena arranged in time. This stylized character does not belong at any particular nation or party, and whether the wrestler is called Kuzenko, which is a nickname for mustache after Stalin, Yapazian. Gaspardi, Joe Vignola, or Nolliers, the aficionado does not attribute to him any specific country except fairness, observing the rules. What then is a bastard for this audience composed, in part, we are told, of people who are themselves outside the rules of society? Essentially someone unstable, who accepts the rules only when they are useful to him and transgresses the formal continuity of attitudes, he is unpredictable, therefore, asocial. He takes refuge behind the law when he considers that it is in his favour, and breaks it when he finds it useful to do so. Sometimes he rejects the formal boundaries of the ring, and goes on hitting an adversary legally protected by the ropes. Sometimes he re-establishes these boundaries and claims the protection of what he did not respect a few minutes earlier. This inconsistency, far more than treachery or cruelty, sends the audience beside itself with rage. Offended not in its morality, but in its logic, it considers the contradiction of arguments as the basest of crimes. The forbidden move becomes dirty only when it destroys a quantitative equilibrium and disturbs the rigorous reckoning of compensations. What is condemned by the audience is not at all the transgression of insipid official rules. It is the lack of revenge, the absence of punishment, so that there is nothing more exciting for a crowd than the grand delinquent kick given to a vanquished bastard. The joy of punishing is at its climax when it is supported by a mathematical justification. Contempt is then unrestrained. One is no longer dealing with a salute but with a salop, the verbal gesture of the ultimate degradation. Such a precise finality demands that wrestling should be exactly what the public expects of it. Wrestlers, who are very experienced, know perfectly how to direct the spontaneous episodes of the fight so as to make them conform to the image which the public has of the great legendary themes of its mythology. A wrestler can irritate or disgust, he never disappoints, for he always accomplishes completely, by a progressive solidification of signs, what the public expects of him. In wrestling, nothing exists except in the absolute. There is no symbol, no illusion. Everything is presented exhaustively, leaving nothing in the shade. Each action discards all parasitic meanings and ceremonially offers to the public a pure and full signification, rounded like nature. This grand delinquence is nothing but the popular and age-old image of the perfect intelligibility of reality. What is portrayed by wrestling is therefore an ideal understanding of things. It is the euphoria of men raised for a while above the constitutive ambiguity of everyday situations, and placed before the panoramic view of univocal nature, in which signs at last correspond to causes without obstacle, without evasion, without contradiction. When the hero or the villain of the drama, the man who was seen a few minutes earlier possessed by moral rage, Magnified into a sort of metaphysical sign, when he leaves the wrestling hall, impassive, anonymous, carrying a small suitcase and arm-in-arm with his wife, no one can doubt that wrestling holds the power of transmutation, which is common to the spectacle and to religious worship. In the ring, and even in the depths of their voluntary ignominy, wrestlers remain gods because they are, if but for a few moments." They are the key which opens nature, the pure gesture which separates good from evil and unveils the form of justice which is at last intelligible.